Now, what's happening in the United States economy? This is new quarter. This is another thing that I talk to undergrads uh, in econ, even grad students in econ about. When we look at GDP numbers, the first quarter of the year is typically lower than the rest of the year. And my trick question for them is, why is that? And I get all kinds of, well, it's after Christmas and all that. No, it's, it's winter. That is the answer. And we've already had a series of relatively severe winter storms in the Northeast. When we see that happen, we see a drop in growth. Specifically, uh, this year, it's going to be harder on the restaurant market because e even a small storm causes people not to go out to eat. Boston and New York are not letting people eat inside again. So outdoor eating is what's going on. You get a big snowstorm and you don't have restaurant eating. So know that this quarter is going to be weird as far as we're likely to have big growth in certain areas of the economy and back to big shrinkage in certain areas of the economy because it's winter. At some point, humans will get used to cold weather, but it is not here yet. It's probably going to be hundreds and hundreds of years before we're truly in a place where winter does not make our commerce slow down. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Welcome back to a, a new year with the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, this is our first episode due to vacation and then studio shutdown. The first episode of 2022. So happy new year, everybody. I know we're yeah. a little late, but we're economists. We're allowed to do that. We'll revise our Happy New Year expectation in two quarters so that by the end of the year, we will have the final estimated version of our New Year's greeting. On the other hand. Yes. On the other hand, we may have some estimates in advance of what our New Year's greeting may be like for next year. Mm, it may really? or may not sound something like Happy New Year. Right. Right. So, but you, you always have to say, on the other hand. On the other hand, yes. Right. <clears throat> yes. Uh, FDR is famous for saying he wanted a one-handed economist. And that, yep. Um, unfortunately, when you go to economic school, they issue you a series of prosthetics from the, uh, from the department of, uh, what is the, the octopus-looking guy that Spider-Man used to fight in the comic books? I um, don't know. Well, he, he ran the department, if I recall right. So that's just something to look forward to in all of our future episodes of the Personal Wealth Coach is many hands, just like the well, CDC in describing mask guidelines. I know that you have four arms. I do. So and, there. And between the two of us, we have four heads. And most people are going to think about that for a little bit. And some of you... <laughs> Smiled and moaned immediately and said, ah. All right. You better get after the disclosures. Yes, this is the personal wealth coach. This is Jake McClure. And on the line with me, I have. Jeff McClure, I think. Yes. Uh, full disclosure here. We are both bald. Bald. Yes. We both have beards and we are both bald. Uh, the personal wealth coach is not only the name of this program. Hopefully a program that you will find entertaining and uh, frolicsome, although I'm a little iffy on that last part. It's also the name of a SEC-registered investment advisory firm. 
which isn't to say that we're offering investment advice on the air. That's fiduciary stuff, and there's way all kinds of privacy issues, and we don't know everybody that's listening and all that stuff. We're offering education on the air. If we say something really dumb and inaccurate and maybe misleading and dangerous, they're the ones to uh, report it to. Really dumb, you would be on the phone the whole time talking to them about entire episodes of really dumbness. But you volunteered for that. That's all I'm saying. Um, so you want to take the next disclosure? I did two in uh, there. You see how I snuck them in there? New year, new disclosure. I could say that we don't pay for this radio program. Yeah, that's right. And we are not paid to do the radio program. We do advertise on KTEM for the radio program. Um, but, uh, Senator, there is no quid pro quo. Uh, pardon me. Why are you speaking in Latin? Because that's what I do. It's like when I say... The information we provide on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Whoa. Might as well have been Latin. Right. You got to say it really fast. Right. Though, it's, I mean, yeah. Disclosures have to be said really fast and in small print. We should Are say they... them in pig Latin. That way people will concentrate oh, on them more. No, I don't think, I don't think that would work. We can do it. No, don't we, e don't even want to try. So. My brain won't work for that to say. Did we get them all? I think that's it. Uh, we we yeah. uh, the source is deemed reliable. You got that one. You said your deem guarantee warranty all in one sentence. That's yeah. pretty pretty good. Um, all right. So now we continue, dear listeners. That's presuming that there are deer in the audience. I I don't know if there are or not. Um, the producer's price index is a great thing to start talking on. Well, start. We've already started. When the Census Bureau comes out with this information. The headline is really what they make it to be. They give a headline that says something that's usually the top of the list. The top of the thing that everybody would expect to, to hear in a normal month is the increase from last month. Was December better than, than November? And that's what the leading headline usually is. But from the Census Bureau, it's seasonally adjusted. And they're using the same algorithm that they did five years ago to seasonally adjust it where obviously things are not the same as they were five years ago. So just keep that in mind. We're having massive growth in spending. Uh, the, a drop in spending from November to December when you have a raise in of, of less than 2% when you have a rise in spending of getting up there at 17-ish percent. That is... 17% growth is pretty staggeringly large. Okay, so that's one area. We're seeing negative headlines on this. This, I would look at this in an academic setting with nobody's opinion coming in, uh, just sitting and looking at this report. This would be cause to celebrate at any other time. I would look at this and go, 16.9% growth above last year in spending. How could that how could that possibly be bad? We had a big spending in 2020 for Christmas too. How could that be bad? I would be looking at this with celebration. Uh, and unfortunately, that doesn't sell news. You need to have negative headlines. So the negative headlines are out there. I'm happy with that, just as a side note. Those folks that have listened to us for very long this is a common refrain. We say it again and again. It's a quote from Sir John Templeton, one of the greatest investors of the 20th century. Bull markets climb a wall of worry. And a better quote from the same guy 
is bull markets are born on pessimism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. It's, it is behavioral economics before we had behavioral economics. What, why is the world so counterintuitive here? Why is it that when all the headlines are good, that's a bad sign? When all the headlines are bad, that's a good sign? That seems backwards, don't you think? Well, the reason is because the headlines are driven by sentiment. If enough of you are feeling good about the world and the headline reinforces that, then that's the sentiment of the time. The headline saying, hey, this is great. If the headlines are negative, then that's the sentiment of the time too. And a simple thought experiment on this subject. If you are really excited about purchasing in the stock market, if you're really excited about it and you want to tell everybody about it, it generally means you've already done it. Do you follow that so far? I mean, it seems to make sense. It, you don't generally go out and tell everybody, I'm about to go buy a bunch of stuff in the stock market and get a great return. You generally tell people, hey, I bought stuff in the stock market and I got a great return. That sentiment, when a lot of people are saying it, it means they've already purchased. What causes the stock market to rise? People purchasing it. It's an auction market. So the more people trying to buy, the higher the prices go. Uh, the fewer people trying to buy, typically you see prices stagnate or go down. So if everyone is saying the stock market is the place to be, then almost by definition, they're already there or they wouldn't be saying it. I know this is kind of twisty logic. Well, if they're already there, they already bought. And if everyone has already purchased, you follow what I mean, there's nothing there to keep propping the price and make it go up. The first people that sell tend to tend turn that around. So when we see lots of negative headlines, it means that there's money still on the sidelines. People are reluctant to put in the money because or part of the negative headlines. What we typically see at the top of bull markets, what we saw in 2006 and seven, is that this could go on forever. This kind of growth rate is amazing. Those headlines are missing right now. I mean, unless you're talking about Bitcoin, uh, those headlines are even in the down market of Bitcoins, there's still this euphoric craze going on there. If you look at the rest of the country, at the rest of the parts of, of our economy, you see negatives. You see about, oh, how are we going to do the supply chain? We've got chip shortages. Oh, what are we going to do? How is the economy going to be later? Uh, unemployment report was good, but how long will that last? Those are the themes across everything. And that negativity makes us happy because that negativity means that n there's a lot of uncommitted investing dollars. There's more available if we have a downturn in the market. If things get too cheap, there's money on the sidelines to come in and, and pick it back up. So that's, that's just a really gross simplification of why when we look around at headlines being negative, it makes us really positive. Uh, and I, you can't all do that. If, if we all did that, if all headlines said, let's look around, if we've got negatives, we'll make a positive headline, then you'd have all positive headlines. So it only works as long as we're a minority of the journalistic market on the economic side. I know, that's goofy. If enough people had our logic, it would stop working. Because enough people would say, hey, look at all the bad headlines, that's good, and then there'd be a lot of good headlines. 
Okay, so that's kind of goofy thinking, but that's how the market works. We create the environment in the market. All of our experience, all of our hands-on, literally hands-on experience is physical. It's not the concept of how the prices move. And we tend to use physical terminology to talk about the market, like momentum or uh, going up, going down. It's not actually moving. It's not a physical thing. It's a price change. It's no more moving than the can of beans at the grocery store who had its price changed. But because it's not physical, we it's so not physical that we have no other bearing to call it. A lot of us use physical-minded vocabulary around it, and that's problematic. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions out here. One from this morning and uh, one from uh, several weeks ago when we, were, when we didn't have a radio program. I'm going to start with the one from several weeks ago. This is from Justin. We answered by email, by the way. But Justin, this was a fantastic question. Uh, and I'm going to read it all the way through because it's, it's a relatively long question, but it's dealing with, uh, it's, it's kind of like dealing with the practicality. Well, how does this happen? How, what's going on in the background? It says, hello all. I've, I've always wondered the following. How is the movement in price of stock maintained or controlled ethically? I understand that the starting price is set by the investment bank who helps launch the stock to market for the first time. Uh, After that, there are two main points that affect the price, question mark. Reported earnings, growth potential, and analyst buy ratings, following by auction pressures, uh, what people are willing to trade for. And who maintains the price check? Who manages the computer that I assume has an algorithm where each subsequent trade moves the price up or down depending on the previous buy or sell price? What if whoever manages the computing devices that the price shouldn't move much, decides that the price shouldn't move much or moves it even more than it's supposed to? Then the the end of that says no one would be the wiser. So let's kind of start from the beginning in this. How is a stock maintained? How is it controlled ethically? There are a lot of laws that deal with this, but specifically in 1933 and 1934, two big laws were passed. They're called the Securities Act and the Securities Exchange Act. Uh, The Securities Exchange Act is what founded the SEC because prior to that, this question had a lot more bearing If you were buying a stock, you were likely buying it from the company that issued it. And there were very little checks to see that they didn't issue more than 100% of their own company in stocks. There was a lot of that that happened uh, throughout history. So having someone responsible to make sure that you don't issue more stock than you have is important. The SEC is policing that. The Securities Act says, what is a security? What is this thing? You got to register if you have it. If you register, you're now have responsibilities. So then, then you said that the starting price is set by the investment bank who helps launch the stock. Yes, this is called the initial public offering, and it's got all kinds of ritual around it. The ritual is based in how to maintain con- and control ethically. So at the beginning, when a a new stock, a new company is coming to market for the first time, the IPO, they have a period that's called the red herring period. 
Now I'm going to rewind back for what the heck? Why are we talking about the color of a fish? Um, this is hilarious how all the terminology that sounds like um, really sophisticated stuff is really based in much less sophisticated. The red herring is something, it's a smoked fish. When you smoke a herring, it turns red. So why would that have anything to do with the stock market? Because it's how you train coon dogs, how you train bloodhounds. You use a smoked herring and you tie a, a string to it and you drag it behind you through woods or fields or whatever and then the dogs are trained to follow that trail so what does that have to do with an initial public offering well they're not required to release official news they have to put together what's called a prospectus that has all their books that's been extremely thoroughly audited and only uh potential buyers are allowed to look at that and that's set by the investment bank and the initial public offering so these prospectuses go out. The red herring period starts where everybody's got to be quiet about it. No press releases. This is exactly to make sure that it's maintained and controlled. The data should simply be the facts. What are the books of this company? What are they doing? Not somebody trying to hype it. Now, other people typically hype it. I mean, you see that around the IPOs of Facebook and of Google and everybody else is that it gets hyped by people, just not the people that are involved. Okay, once the trading starts, it's an auction market. And the people in charge of grading the price at an auction market are the auctioneers. So if you're selling a piano or a motorcycle at auction, what's to pre keep the auctioneer from lying to you about what it sold for well somebody actually has to buy it if they lie to you and say it was sold at a higher price they have to come up with extra money to give it to you if they lie to you and say it was sold at a lower price they've got to show the uh all of the paperwork that shows what money came in and so it's auditable that's number one that the books on this were all done on paper to begin with. The computers are being done now, but the computers have backups just like the paper did. The paper had multiple copies in different locations. You guys all remember, I'm sure, um, those of you that are old enough enough, uh, the carbon copies, the pink and the yellow sheets, sometimes the blue and the purple that went away behind it, how many copies you had all at once, and one went into one file and one into another file, the same way taxes used to be done. Well, computers do that the same way. It produces records that go into different locations on the same transaction. So there's a lot less that can be done by the auctioneer, as it, would, as it were. And on top of that, the auctioneers in this case are thoroughly regulated by something called the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA. They combined with the stock exchanges uh, a few years back to make one regulatory entity to govern how that auction process works to make sure there's terms that people use in the industry in the investment world they say things like best execution and so on it is you have to number one you have to keep a record of all the trades and how they occurred you also have to keep a record of your dealings to make sure that you're trying to get the best trade you can for the client if you're the auctioneer and just as a side note we talked about this uh over the last several years with robin hood 
where Robin Hood has been fined multiple times. They've got a, a fantastic business concept of free trades and on the, on the stock market and, and doing it on your app and so on. Where they've been fined is that it's not really a free trade. They're not getting the, the best execution. They could go to other sources and get a better price or a faster trade or both. Instead, they're, they're doing something called uh, payment for order flow, and it gets relatively complicated at that point. But they're being paid to run their sales through one institution. It's a very normal thing, except that you have to approach it carefully to make sure you're not hurting the client. And in this case, Robinhood was fined quite a lot of money uh, for not having best execution not getting it to the right place at the right time. So it's kind of goes to the theme of the question, who maintains the price check? If you're at an auction in one room, all of the bidders are in that room or are calling in. If you're at an auction that spreads the entire country and it's not just on one exchange, and part of that is one bank might be buying from another bank or you might be buying from the inventory of the bank that you're uh, doing business with. There's all kinds of places you can get the stock. This is part of the way they maintain the price. There's something called market makers. The big investment banks, a lot of the big investment banks, decide to make a market in given company stocks or given company bonds, which just means that if you want to buy or sell, you have a place to go to really quickly to get that. So there's extra inventory sitting on hand that isn't being held for the purpose of, of appreciation or investment in that company, but rather to make the trading of the stock of that company smoother. So let's make a really, really overly simplified concept. Say there's 10 stocks to a company and you want to buy one of those stocks, but nobody wants to sell. You just keep asking them bidding to them a higher price again and again and again, but no stock trade's been done. So you just keep pushing that price up, pushing that eventually somebody sells. If you have one of those people who says, I'm just holding on to the stock in case somebody comes along and wants to buy it. I want to make owning this company relatively easy. I don't really want to own the company, but I'll hold this share in case somebody wants to buy it in the future. That's what the, for the best term for it in this case is the auctioneers are doing, is they have an inventory of the item that they're selling at auction. So if you're selling comic books at an auction and you only have one issue, one copy of that comic book, the price is going to be really different than if you have a stack of that same issue, the same number sitting off to the side. That's what a market maker does. It's to try to avoid unnecessary spikes and drops in the market based on not having enough inventory to buy or sell. So that's part of it. And they have to maintain records and be audited by third-party auditing companies on a regular basis. And this is one of those things that after the Great Recession that was really focused in on, Madoff is a great example of where this totally failed. He was operating in uh, uh, an unregistered investment company. 
Uh, he also had some registered ones that were all on the up and up and, and were inspected and everything looked great. And then he had this one off to the side that he was running that really nobody had any input in and wasn't regulated. It was a Ponzi scheme. So this comes to the investor in that this is always considered a buyer beware area. Caveat emptor. Know what you're buying and who you're buying it from, if you can. If you're buying it from a, a major institution, uh, A.G. Edwards, Pershing, um, Robinhood, E-Trade, you just go down the list, all these different big brokerage firms. If you're buying it from them, you go in there with the base assumption that these guys are already audited and inspected, that they are part of, a, uh, of, of the normal regulatory framework. Going to independent broker dealers, you take a little bit more risk, but you got to make sure that their supervision is good, that they have good checks and balances and that their books are being kept and so on. So this is why most of the stock trading takes place on major platforms is specifically because of this. Is it possible to mess up the price of a stock by accident? Yes, absolutely. Um, there are some cases you can look up, uh, any, just type in a, a Google search for whale trade with a uh, spelled as in the large mammal in the ocean. Uh, in Britain a few years back, one of the major traders accidentally put some extra zeros in a purchase that he was doing and a direct payment um, and didn't have anybody review the trade before it executed which just as a side note, that is absurd. Every major institution, if you have a hand input number uh, for a trade, has, is supposed to have policies in place where lots of eyeballs look at it before it goes through. So this case, a large movement in, uh, in banking, in the banking world changed. And it was a big deal, and the person lost their job, and it, it's really easy to make a typo that has massive monetary consequences, which is why there's this framework in place. Now, having said all of that, in the event that it's done improperly, what happens? What happens when somebody is fraudulent or is putting in the wrong number on purpose? Because that's the reason why we have all these regulations, is that people actually did it. Um, it's kind of funny that laws generally are not made before the crime is committed. You don't even know. The lawmakers are not out there going, what's the next great new scheme I could come up to make, uh, make it against the law? No, you have to have the crime occur before someone makes a law that says that's not a good thing. We've had a lot of it in, in the past. Uh, I mean, Madoff is a great example of a guy that's right in the middle of of the financial industry that is surrounded by regulators, but was able to sneak this one fund through the regulatory maze without anybody noticing it. And it had billions and billions of dollars in it. Um, the SEC has gotten better. The regulatory framework has gotten a lot more onerous. There's a lot more paperwork that needs to be filled out since, since Madoff to now. Uh, that's true kind of across the board in the investment world. The amount of regulatory oversight has increased drastically because we saw so much fraud and malfeasance uh, in the global financial crisis, the Great Recession, and in 
the Arthur Anderson Enron situation. We changed the global or, or the generally accepted accounting practices after Enron and Arthur Anderson. Um, changes get made, but there's it isn't the things that you asked the question about here that are the dangers. It's the next Ponzi scheme. It's the ones that don't have the regulatory framework in place that are the danger. Like Madoff, there's a lot of regulatory oversight that was added because of Madoff, but it wouldn't have caught Madoff even with this extra oversight because he was intentionally avoiding it. So this comes back to due diligence for you. And that was a great question. Thank you, Justin. Due diligence, make sure the place you're buying from actually is keeping track of how it's done. Uh, do some searches on complaints and so on as well. If you want to talk to us off the air, uh, we at the firm, the personal wealth coach, we actually give fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth. Um, if you would like to have a conversation with one of us in person or on the phone, uh, the email addresses are Jake or Jeff at tpwc.com or Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie, the personal wealth coach. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com. You can sign up for our newsletter, send us information through the contact form. Uh, you can listen to our radio program going back, or you can go anywhere podcasts are offered, and we've got some bite-sized snippets on individual subjects going back as well as the full hour-long radio program episode hours. So it's worthwhile. Check, check and see in the old newsletters if we knew what we were talking about a year ago, two years ago. Just check us out. And uh, we'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach.